0: so according to podcast production models and to improve our margins we're recording two episodes at once and this is our second episode so here's to mixed 12 monday yeah and our first beer being our six yeah yeah definitely a mistake so thanks everybody Everybody, This is the Mixed Six. I'm Spencer. And I'm Caleb. Uh, this is a podcast where we will drink six different beers and talk about six different topics. As it is today, we're drinking our second set of six different beers and our second set of six different topics. So good luck. You were warned. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for following at home. Uh, and for those of you who have been supporting us by visiting the website and on Patreon, we thanks you, We you. we thank you so much. And that's what Beer 7 looks like. In the meantime, as you probably know by now, uh, we start this podcast by giving you our rating system for beers. It's a one to five point scale. That's how we tell you whether we like the beer or not. And today, or at least for this episode, our rating system is Stranger Things Characters. So... If it's a one, it's a Demogorgon, because the only place you would drink this would be in hell, and it'll make you vomit slugs. (laughs) If it's a two, it's Lonnie Byers. For those of you who don't remember, Lonnie is Will's dad, and this beer, like Lonnie, is only there for the money. (laughs) If it's a three, it's a hopper, because it does its job. If it's a four, and this is a little controversial, it's Steve. Because if there is a greater story of redemption, I've not, re- I mean, maybe the Bible, That's but not I've controversial not read it at all. No, it shouldn't be. This beer has a character arc. If this is controversial, this it podcast is, of is not for you. Yeah. That's how I feel right now. And then obviously, if it's a five, it's 11. It breaks the mold, it changes the game, it introduces a new level of consciousness into your being. It allows you to transverse the universe. Yes.
1: It feels like you're in a, f- a sensory deprivation tank. That's right. That's yeah. right.
0: Friends don't Full lie, of people. nothing but beer. Friends don't lie. So, given that uh, rating system, Caleb, tell me what you're drinking. I am drinking Lucky Buddha, mm. which is from Cheer Day Brewery out of Carlsbad, California, but it's actually produced. It's just bottled there. It's actually produced in uh, Ross. Producer Ross, help me out. Uh, Hangzhou? Hangzhou. Hangzhou? All right. I got it close. completely wrong. No, yeah, really close. Uh, Hangzhou, <laughs> China. You are Han grenade close. Yeah. Um, it has a lovely bottle, uh, green bottle beer, with a Buddha shaped into the bottle. I want to say this as someone who's held and looked at a lot of beer bo- beer bottles, it is the most beautiful bottle I've ever it's seen. It's a ever. wonderful bottle. And that seems to be intentional because it's a solid Lonnie Byers beer. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of a Mickey's, mm. like a Chinese Mickey's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that green bottle beer, it's just... Gonna leave that joke on the table. Yeah. 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 All right. So that's a Mickey's. Nope, that's a Lonnie Byers. Uh, We're Mm -hmm. into our first segment now. And our first segment in this episode, the second of Back to Backs, is Armchair Director. This is, of course, our movie segment. And today, we're talking about dream remakes, or as we'll call them, dream makes. Mm -hmm. Caleb, you want to explain? So Dream Remakes is attaching a film property that exists Uh to a director that exists and enjoying the fact that this director is going to do it in a completely different way and just dreaming of the wonderful ways in which this could be done by this other director. Yeah. Um, It doesn't even necessarily have to be like a failed film. Just be a film you want to see interpreted by a different auteur, if th- you will. I think that's the more fair way. Yeah, yeah. that's how I came at this. I didn't yeah. I didn't really come at this as I the, didn't look for shit that could be redeemed. That's right. That's right. I looked for shit that needed someone else to shit it. Yeah. Is how that, I thought that could be that. more interesting. Absolutely. Right. So I think we both picked a runner-up yeah. and a regular. Yeah. Yep. So do you want to do your runner-up first? Yeah. So let me start with my runner-up. Um, this morning, as I was making some show notes for today, I didn't want to put on my normal Sports Center television because the Chiefs lost yesterday. I can't watch Sports Center the whole day after because when the Chiefs highlights come on, it's like a it's like a traumatic experience for me. So what did I put on? I put on the Power Rangers. Alright, Power Rangers, Dino something, something. I don't remember anymore. We're on like the fifteenth iteration of the Power Rangers, and if possible it's only gotten weirder. But it struck me as I was watching the Power Rangers this morning while making some notes that the Power Rangers the movie was an integral part of my childhood. Another integral part of my childhood, and something we discussed only moments ago, was Big Trouble in Little China. So what would happen if John Carpenter got to direct Power Rangers the movie? (laughs) Go on. So, a couple things would happen. A, soundtrack goes up by 200%. No shit! Easy. In that fact, soundtrack is the bomb! There's evidence for this. For those of you that have played the Power Rangers video game on Super Nintendo, they didn't know what to do with the soundtrack of Power Rangers fighting, you know, it's functionally Ultraman, but as a Super Nintendo game, they didn't know what to do, so they just put what sounds like a John Carpenter rip across the entire <laughs> video game. And it is one of the most pleasant experiences of my whole (laughs) life. So soundtrack goes up. And you think about, like, Tommy the Green Ranger from the original Power Rangers, right? Oh, God. He's going to be edgy as fuck. Oh, my God. like going <laughs> be like the dude from Attack on Precinct 13. Yes, exactly. It'll be like Johnny Depp. you want to love. In 21 Jump Street, playing Tommy the Green Ranger, <laughs> playing Tommy the Green Ranger. <laughs> yeah. That shit will be on point. And then I think about, like, all the weird stuff. Like, what would John Carpenter do for Megazord, right? It wouldn't just be dinosaurs. It would be, like... Really, really methed out like old um forgotten Greek gods or something weird. So it'd be like Aristotle's like bleeding eye face sitting on top of like Plato's shoulders and then like Athena's lower half or something. (laughs) And there'd be some weird metaphor in there, but mostly it would just be drugs. And there would be (laughs) All practical effects for drugs. Incredible incredible synth wave in the background (laughs) while Megazord was coming together. So Anyways, my runner-up was the Power Rangers and John Carpenter. Man, you're going to top that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So my runner-up, the one that didn't quite make it, uh, is Christopher Nolan's Matrix Reloaded. Oh, wow. The second one. Yes. Where the Wachowskis went off the rails. Yeah. And Ex- lost except the Except for the highway scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah except, for, no, it's not a bad film. Right. But there's nothing in that film that the Wachowskis can do. That can't be done by Nolan, Mm because Nolan's done, aped all of it before. Yeah. And there's shit that the Wachowskis couldn't do at the time that Nolan has since done to a mind-bending extreme. Wow. So uh, I think you can redeem that franchise, because The Matrix, one of my all-time favorite films. Absolutely it is. The original is great, and then it doesn't last through the trilogy, sadly. One of the great problems Mm -hmm. in my marriage is that Brandy has never watched The Matrix all the way through and doesn't care to. And that makes me wonder, like, like the first one. Of those? How are we even Has going she to seen raise the first children? One? Yeah, no, no. Man, that's rough. I know. Like, you could like compromise on not seeing two and three. If I knew any, good I compromise not this seeing not two and three for the rest of my life. Yep, because uh, they're not very good. But I think Nolan could handle the heady subject matter. Love it. He could can- make it visually appealing, and he could sort of save it from the Wachowskis. Um too
1: farness that is the reloaded in uh, the last one. you mean you take out that zion rave
0: yes zion rave is gone if zion rave goes i'm out okay i want to <laughs> okay. tell you that right now <laughs> all right, right. <laughs> you know it's weird cuz like he actually flips a semi truck in the dark night so think about him doing that highway scene oh god they would have had to like shut down Cali- like all of California. Well, like they built a highway for the highway scene. Right. And re- I, I, I don't see Nolan doing anything less than that. No. He would have built a state. Yeah. He would have made the 51st state and, and flipped
1: semi-trucks all over. Alternately, he could have gone to one of those ghost cities in China and just used all of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay.
0: So those were both runner-ups, which means there are some winners. So here's my winner. I thought long and hard about this because there's a movie that was almost great. And we've talked about this. That movie was Superman Returns. Yeah. Uh, you know 60% of the way in that movie is perfect and then Brian Singer you know well he shit on all of us i mean really and truly he shit on all of us and so i thought if i was going to redo superman returns and make it the perfect movie it was on its way to being cuz i would keep much of the cast to be clear i thought Brandon Routh was a was a really believable wonderful superman and maybe even a better clark kent kevin spacey as lex luthor was inspired casting James Marston, as can't remember his name because no one cares, Lois Lane's boyfriend, was perfect. Because everyone would hate Lois Lane's boyfriend. Yeah. Because he's not Superman. James Marston is the human Baxter. Literally the worst, right? Literally the worst. (laughs) Okay. But... Who would you want to direct the film? So I went through. I went through three iterations here. So my first thought was you'd want Steven Spielberg to do it because it would be beautiful and it would be true to the Golden Age Superman and it would look like a Golden Age Superman comic. It would it'd be, be nostalgia before it was nostalgia. It would. But the but but I've landed on not Spielberg because I have Golden Age Superman. You know, it was the Richard Donner Christopher Reeve shit. I'm good there. All right. So then I thought, well, maybe it'd be J.J. Abrams who has taken Golden Age shit like the you know original Star Trek stuff. And updated it in a really nice way while maintaining the nostalgia but making it look better and feel more lively. He's done the same thing with Force Awakens. But the problem is I don't – there's nothing on Superman to lens flare. So like it's not going to make sense. Well, also sense. Superman is powered by the sun. So there's too much light in every scene. Right. He will find something to lens flare. Yes, yeah, it will be blinding. Superman will not be visible. So <laughs> then I thought, okay, so what do I really want out of a Superman film? I want flying around. I want a lot of action. I want a little bit of wit, right? Maybe even like surface wit. And mostly I want good guys beating bad guys. I want Michael Bay to direct Superman Returns. Oh, my God. No.
1: Wow.
0: No. Wow. I want Michael Bay to direct Superman Returns. Oh, God. It's going to be so racist. It's going to be so racist. And sexist. Yeah. And sex. Like, do you want Superman nuts? Do you want, like, a close-up on that? Because Michael Bay will do that. No, he's not Joel No, Schumacher. It won't be Superman
1: nuts. It'll be Brainiac nuts. He'll be a giant Yeah, it'll, be, it'll
0: be giant Brainiac, Brainiac, Brainiac nuts. might be Brainiac nuts. Brainiac nuts would be better than functioning Superman nuts. I can't believe you're saying kid. this. If there's anyone who could ruin Superman harder than Zack Snyder... It is Michael Bay. I don't agree with you, You have man. chosen the form of your destroyer. It is it is mindless. It is senseless. It is stuff blowing up and people flying around. Now, I will say this. The only caveat there is Michael Bay would arguably kill more people in a Metropolis fight than Zack Snyder did. He Fider would kill the world. And like, may, maybe there's something to that because a Superman fight isn't a regular fight. Oh, man. I see – I.
1: Also, you it wouldn't be about how Superman's a hero. It's about how the U.S. military is a hero, and Superman's there.
0: Well, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, that worked in yeah. uh, Dark Knight Returns, right? I mean, that's kind of a Frank Miller theme. Maybe, maybe it's even got a little more depth than we were all hoping for out of a Michael Bay I film. I cannot believe you have said these words. I said to what me. I said, and I feel like I mean it. You know what I mean? Because okay. Yeah. Okay. You're think, wrong, though. I think back to, like, that first Transformers film, and I think back to Bad Boys, and I go, man, Michael Bay does some fun shit. And you know what I really want out of a Superman film? Fun shit. And I can't help but not see those things go together. If it was the rock era Michael Bay. Yes. Yeah. Think. Yeah. You remember that scene where, like, Clark Kent looks down at Jimmy Olsen, and he's like, I really need you to do this, Jimmy. And Jimmy's like, I'll try. He's like, you'll try. Tryings for nerds Right, yeah <laughs> Winners go home and fuck the lead reporter That's right And then he whips his dick out And goes shooting into the air at Moxby. Right. Well, apparently in Ryan Singer's that. universe He whipped his dick out anyways And we got Kid throwing a piano, okay? So <laughs> okay. it can't get any worse <laughs> All, right. All right Since you've been so judgy on your high horse over there <laughs> Yeah, you've never done that on this talk podcast Talk to me about your dream make, Caleb <laughs> All right, my dream make was it, was it Babe and uh, Sophia Coppola? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay uh-huh. Oh, man, you're just
1: gonna throw that in his face for a while
0: Oh, all the time. I'm sorry that I've been earnest Mm -hmm. with you. Uh, So anyway, I would like to see Inception, which is well executed, but I think ultimately fails in terms of like having a plot that makes any kind of sense whatsoever. And the fact that every dream they go into is the dream of an accountant? Like, as dreams go, they are as tame as possible. Like, dreams a la the L.L. Bean catalog. Um... And I think it loses all sense of whimsy in that it's utter seriousness when it's a movie about a heist that occurs in dreams. Which is, like, not a concept I want to see done with that amount of seriousness. I want to see Terry Gilliam's Inception. Really? Yes. (laughs) Also, wow. (laughs) You are... (laughs) Are, do you have that many drugs on hand? Like, are you just sitting on a stockpile of drugs that no, I didn't know no, about? I'm not. Terry Gilliam's Inception. Yes. I, okay, I, I take issue with a number of things here. One, that the dreams are somehow mundane. Okay, the dreams are visually stunning, but they are mundane. Uh, one of the dreams is like a fucking gunfight on snowmobiles in an, like an alpine utopia. Yeah, and it's nice, clean, and white lines. It's also in a clean, brutalist bunker. And then before that, you're in a clean, modernist hotel. And then before that, you're in a wonderful, modernist Japanese hotel. And it's the dreams of a fucking civil servant. Like, there's nothing weird at all. Like There's no weird creature you've never seen. No one has the face of your mom and the body of a giraffe. Like, it's nothing like that that the only thing it has for it is dream logic for giving its plot holes. Terry Gilliam can do plot holes. He can also do stunning imagery. That's going to stick with me ever forever Brazil style. And so I want him to do a heist movie a la Time Bandits, which he's done before, with some goddamn whimsy because it's your heist movies and fucking dreams. And Terry Gilliam can do your sort of like existential, did it really happen or not ending without being so fucking bone serious. It's like how Joseph Gordon Levitt emoting at like a Keanu Reeves level throughout the entire film. Like, it's just so fucking tamped down and serious for a movie that's stealing 90% of its v- visuals from an anime called Paprika. Like, you, when you're gonna steal that much and, like, just tame it and bland it and earth-tone it down like that, and then have all those fucking plot holes for it, why don't you have, like, a little fucking whimsy like the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus? and I, I, I'm like... Stick with me a little bit. I don't need need to see another version of that movie. It was was too much for me. (laughs) Okay. In one iteration. Here's what I'll say. For someone who looked at me incredulously when I suggested that Michael Bay would be a fantastic director of Superman Returns because he'd amp up the fabulousness of Superman Returns. I don't think anyone's accused Terry Gilliam of being an anti-Semite. Are an anti-anybody with color or an anti-or a jingoist monster. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the political agenda of Michael Bay here is... Is going to be apparent in every one of his films. Michael Bay's The Rock is included in the Criterion Collection for the same reason that Lady Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will is.
1: <laughs> like, uh, point of order, I don't think that's actually the case. <laughs> <laughs> the Rock is a Criterion Collection. I know it is, but I don't think... I, I think there is a little bit of difference between The, 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 the Triumph of the Will and The, the, the Rock. yeah. yeah. In terms of execution? Yeah. All
0: right, For here, propaganda style? I don't think so. Here is something we can't agree on. Uh, I win, and I'm going to get another beer to celebrate. <laughs> All about. right. Hey, Spencer. What are you drinking? All right. We've made a horrible mistake <laughs> on so many levels today, but not the least of which is... We saved a beer for me that is n- not in English. Uh, really, there's one segment on the neck of the bottle in English, and everything else is not. Cling to that. Yeah, so it's a it's a Grimbergen, G-R-I-M-B-E-R-G-E-N. G R I M B E R G E N. We have German listeners. I'm oh, going to so, guess, Christopher. Gonna, right, I'm going to guess it's German. Did we yeah. pronounce that correct? Right, and if not, please let us know and give me some phonetic spelling so I can figure this out. Here's what it does tell me it is, and and what I agree to given given that I've tried it, a full-bodied amber beer. With a rich mouthfeel. Um, it's 6.5%, so that seems like a uh, mistake. Level three. <laughs> Let me say this about the Grimbergen. Maybe Grimbergen. Um, it is, uh, it's probably a three for me. It's a hopper, it does its job. I think it's got an interesting flavor. Occasionally, ambers have a little bit of a bloodiness about them to me in how they sit on the back of the tongue, and that's what this one's got. So it's a three. You know, I wouldn't run out and find it, although I don't know if I could run out and find it. Um, either, but but I'm moving on from it. All right, Caleb, what are we talking about? We are going to talk about in dissecting our fun, our board game segment, Concept, mm-hmm. uh, which was the 2014 game of the win, game of the year winner at Essen, uh, and the Redemption of Charades. Yeah. So, Concept as a game was a game I sought for many, many a month, couldn't get a copy, and I did not know a damn thing about it. Bought it based on the design of the box alone. like We're talking like White Album box. You you can judge a box by its cover. Yeah, it stands out from the shelf. So clear design. It does. And that design aesthetic turns out to be the entire mechanic of the game. Whole game. Yeah. So uh, what do you think about Concept? Because you and Brandy were really turned on to it just as we were. All right. So here's the thing about Concept. Uh, Concept is a board-based game. Where participants try to get others to guess concepts by placing markers on corresponding tracks, and the tracks could either be colors or types of words or numbers or professions. You place markers on those things, and when you place a marker, you're trying to build the concept such that other people would guess what the concept is. So like charades, but rather than by acting it out, you're placing markers around the board in order to illustrate these things. And the markers are colored. So you could do concepts and sub That's right. You can link things together by way of choosing similarly colored markers so as to build a number of concepts together. Because some of the things you're, you're asked to guess are not just a concept, but they're entire quotes that may have up to ten words. And yeah. so you need to guess the quote. And one of the ways you can do that is by breaking the quote into its subsequent words and then linking those words together by their colors. Or you could do even relatively simple things with sub like fictional character, small boy, uh, and then occupation, love, and then weapon, stick, and then pointy thing. And you're like, oh, okay. Fictional character tiny boy. It flies. The occupation is love. It's got a weapon with a stick and a pointy thing. It's Cupid. Right. And then you're like, yeah, okay. And I did three subconcepts to get you to say one word. Right, right. You know, I'd, I'd mapped one out too. So, like, you could do fictional character, uh, male Blue and red flies, and you'd be like, "Oh, well, maybe that's Superman." You yeah. know, so you can move things by around Michael Bay, right? By Michael Bay, kills minorities with his eyes. Much more interesting, uh, much more flashy, uh, <laughs> and a lot, a lot more explosions. Everyone agrees it's already won an Oscar in this
1: alternate universe. <laughs> so here are, yeah but a technical Oscar like best sound editor <laughs> yeah that's right that's like right. it's not gonna win let's not get right, crazy right. Yeah.
0: you know when it's on your mantle and people come over you don't go well yeah but it was a technical Oscar okay this starting, <laughs>
1: I, actually I think they do in Hollywood I think so, you are judged by the cl- caliber of Oscar you have <laughs> starting,
0: starting to sound a little bit like my performance anxiety bit. all right so I've been thinking about why because we play concept a lot a lot it's like our ending game that's exactly yeah. that's exactly what it when is when we've had too much to drink we drop some concept we on. start with big, like alchemists, right? Difficult games that require some processing yeah. and as alcohol creates processing problems, we move to concept. We drink while we play BT Yeah, Much like we drink while we talk about playing, right? Because yes. it feels like if you're going to do the
1: one, do the other. The commonality is drinking. Oh,
0: and playing <laughs> for you, what Producer it's worth. Ross. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he, here's why I think that happens. And I would say of all the games we've played together over the last three years, in terms of just volume, concept might be at the top of the list. Right? Oh yeah. So I've got three reasons why that's true. Okay, one, it's just a great party game. Like in terms of just fun, easygoing, highly interactive, can do whilst drunk or not while drunk. Yeah, talk about low barrier of entry. You Man. see that board, everyone freaks out, and then you explain it once and everybody's like, Oh, I got it. Right. And you're and you're all playing for the rest of the night. Absolutely. So I love it's just a great party game. It is at the top of party game list. Two and maybe more to the substance of the game, it really forces you to think about your reasoning style and how other people reason. So for example, um, my preferred method of reasoning is that you give me an already baked concept and then I get to unpack it, right? So tell me about a thing and then let me pull the thing apart. Concept asks you to do the opposite thing, which is gives you a concept and then figure out you have to figure out how to build the concept. How do you build that out of constituent smaller concept? To make other people see that thing. And there's been some crazy emergent play that's happened while we've done that. Absolutely. Like, like when we're trying to get people to sounds of things, and we'll do like sound part of sound. Yes. And then we'll drop like 26 cubes on the number one tile and yeah. be like, oh, it's the alphabet. And then we'll start removing cubes until we get to the letter of the al- Like we've done some crazy high-level shit. Right. And that's what I'm – one of the things that I like most about that game is that in forcing you to rethink your reasoning style, you also have to think about how the people around you reason. Yes. Because like Brandy and I do not reason similarly. And so to have to explain something to her without the use of words, I, I can't just figure out how I would explain it. I have to figure out how she might also think through it. And so it forces you to really challenge your reasoning style and the reasoning style of others and come up with a method for putting those two things together. And I find it phenomenal because that's the meta—that's metagame yeah. right there, figuring out that piece. You, on the other hand, have a very interesting concept strategy, which is as something goes longer and people cannot figure out how you've landed where you've landed, you just tap the board increasingly more intensely <laughs> so as to indicate, no, 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 this thing. All right. well, Because we were all thinking other I'm not things. super sober at that time of night. Right, life. true. Uh, I'm also implying sequence. Mm. Which is Uh also really important, very important, which is unlike things like charades and things, sequence is vitally important in concept and which subconcept you're putting forth first. And like, sometimes you have to start all over, wipe everything off the board and begin again to get people to guess stuff. And that's what I find intensely interesting And also, when I get frustrated in concept I get frustrated, but I get tactically frustrated And it does like cause me to hit the board a bunch But it's not like I want to quit and do anything else Because I'm not standing in front of a room of people like charades Right. When I'm essentially doing the same activity We are all sat down at a table at the same time So there's like that much pressure off of the performance thing Where I don't feel like, why would anyone do this sure. When it gets frustrating I just get frustrated because I want you to understand what I'm saying. The other frustrating thing is that you're totally handicapped by the other person's ability to abstract reason mm-hmm. uh, or to reason abstractly, I guess I should say. So, for example, last week we played and you got a uh, profession wears a black cro- cloak or black robes and wooden hammer. And no one could think of judge, yes. right? Which is – No but, one could think of judge. But that's the backwards-forwards notion of reasoning, right? Like so had you given me judge, I would have said, I don't know, where's a black cloak, wouldn't hammer. But you gave me black cloak hammer, and now I have to think about what in the world profession wears black cloaks and uses a wooden hammer. And so you really are counting on other people as much as you're counting on your ability to activate whatever it is the, you need. The one I will remember for the rest of the time was, boy, with an imaginary friend, yeah. that is an animal that is yellow and black with stripes. Right, yeah. And I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah, Calvin, Cal- Calvin and Hobbes was difficult. Okay? Uh, I almost flipped the table on that But, but that's because
1: – Point of order. Uh, uh, Hobbes is not yellow. So <laughs> shut up,
0: and there was the problem.- mm-hmm. We out. all would have gotten it had you just appropriately sure described Ross Hobbs. Off the podcast <laughs> but but what it comes down to is it doesn't matter in some uh, what is most frustrating and, and at times most entertaining about the game, it doesn't matter how adequately you illustrate the constituent parts. you know the the magic of words and concepts is in putting the constituent parts together. It's the yeah. thing that goes beyond that, and sometimes no amount of constituent parts can get you to do whatever whatever that is in the middle, the squishy stuff. And and that's why I think that game's the the most fun. I would say for our listeners who are looking for a good party game to add to their repertoire or like to play in a game group it's so versatile. and want something light. You can plan a whole night around concept. Absolutely. Or it can be the end of the night or it can be an in betweener. Uh, You can play it as long as you want or not There's a scoring system we've never used Literally never used it Because it's so much fun without the competitive aspect In terms of party games it is And we normally don't use our beer rating systems for other things But it's an 11 It's a hard 5 in terms of party games It's a 5 as an 11 Absolutely Um, On that note you should get another beer and we're moving on We're nearly two full podcasts in, and I noticed that you chose a Tallboy for this beer. So tell me about that. Well, I chose a Tallboy because it is a, a Urban Chestnuts Revolution Series number 1. Numero uno. Wing and Nut. Mm. It's a chestnut-based beer, and I like a nutty beer. How I prefer my nuts. I like a Southern Pecan. Probably one of my fives out there. Really? Uh, yeah, big fan of it. And this is a solid. It's a solid, Steve. That's a four. It's, yeah, it's making a character arc. If I'm going to go for a nutty beer, and I just want sheer mass, I'm definitely going for this because it's not a small amount of beer. My goodness, it is a lot of beer. It is one full pint. So yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Well, hey, enjoy that. Uh, I'm and, gonna. I'm doing my best. He is. You should see his face. Uh, and and while we're. While Caleb's drinking that, we're on to jukebox in the back. This is a segment we introduced a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. This is our music segment. And today we're going to talk about top three guilty pleasures. It's kind of how we started the the binge binger segment. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I think it's good that we get this out of the way early. I agree. Because really what it lets listeners know is if you can't deal with the worst parts of us, yeah. this is not going to be for you. Exactly. Right. This, yeah. this is really bearing it all. Take it, it all or take none. Just And some of you are going to take none yeah. after this. Yeah, that's fair. I also need to say before we get into the lists here, top three guilty pleasures. This one was really difficult for me. Because m- the majority of your music tastes is guilty pleasure. <laughs> well, okay, the other way of saying that <laughs> is I feel guilt for none of it. Like when we're in a bar and I put Selena Gomez or Taylor Swift on. I'm doing the bar a service, a great deed of respect. So I feel no guilt. I've never gotten in an actual fight over a jukebox choice that Spencer made, but it has been close. So we were There have been glaring, glaring looks of judgment. We were at a hole-in-the-wall bar in Springfield, Missouri a few weeks ago, and I got up to go play the jukebox, and Brandy grabbed my arm and said, Babe, just be careful. <laughs> And, and she didn't need to so say anything to else to me. She just needed to let me know very subtly that if I played Selena Gomez or Taylor Swift or, I don't know, Aqua, like shit was going to get weird in this cowboy bar. So you have an embarrassment of choices here. I do. Yeah. And I had to figure out which ones were on the fringe such that I would even feel weird about having done this. So so I'm going to go ahead and start. <laughs> okay. All right. Number three for me. And this one feels like a weird choice kind of all the way around, because a couple of episodes ago as we were talking about uh, music that makes us feel a little judgy, Mm -hmm. I suggested that I might want to put all of country music in one bucket, but for Garth Brooks. Oh, you love some Garth Brooks. And so number three on my list is Garth Brooks. It's absolutely a guilty pleasure for me, because I think by and large, much of it is terrible. I think that whole Chris Gaines moment is one of the weirdest phenomena in all of music history. Man, his comeback when he tried to like discover Facebook and like learn social media was perhaps the most awkward thing I've ever seen put to that. He like refused, or maybe still refuses. I'm not sure. I haven't checked in years to be on iTunes because he doesn't want people to buy individual songs of his. He wants them to buy full albums.
1: (laughs) Is that real? Are you? (laughs) you Yeah, no. He's not shitting you. It's just funny
0: every time I hear it because like Garth Brooks. Needs to maintain the experience. <laughs> <laughs> having said that... Like he's fucking Radiohead or he something. Is, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey man, art for art's sake. Um, having said that, when I'm in a bar and I'm like a couple of beers in, maybe even bone sober, I don't know, and someone puts on like Friends in Low Places or Rodeo, in my mind... That's what happens before everyone in the bar starts singing together in this like scrubs like moment where yeah. we're all one, unified by music. It's true. Like, Journey has gotten to the point where it's reached the culture conception enough that it's like some people be like, oh, no, no, don't stop believing. You right. can't sing along to it. Same thing with Caroline yep. and like some, you know, some solid hits like that. <laughs> Garth Brooks, Friends and Lone Places, you all feel kind of shame. Yep. And yeah, you do it anyway. Shameless, and it's other sort of great tra- Garth Brooks songs. And it's just sort of transcendent yep. when, when it gets to that point of the night. You got to be careful doing it too early, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, if you do it, or if you're the guy that blows Garth. Oh, okay, I'm going to change that sentence. If you're the guy. <laughs> go on. If you're the guy that plays Garth Brooks too early. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you've ruined the whole night. Because now you can't go back to it either, because people are like, we already tried this. So yeah. that's number three on my list. All right. For you? Okay, uh, mine's not a public guilty pleasure, uh, but I'm, okay, I'm really just putting the entire genre of ska on the list. But I, if I had to say, like my my gateway drug was Real Big Fish. Sure, I came up during a time when ska seemed like the thing that was going to happen. Yeah. And I know it's hard for anyone, including myself, to realize such time exists, <laughs> but there was a heady days in the late 90s when, you know, Real Big Fish was on the radio, and I got really, really into Ska. No judgment. And I—you should judge. Mm-hmm. You should judge. Like, for, for the white appropriation alone— there's some deep shame there, but like it's the music of my youth. I went to ska scenes, if you believe it or not, those existing in, not thing. in Missouri. Uh, like What's a ska scene? I imagine it's like a Popeyes <laughs> with like some Ed Hardy wearing motherfuckers. It's style. like a like. shitty punk scene, mm-hmm. but they let you have like a Tuesday night.
1: Mm. That that's really slow. Kind of surprised you didn't say Mighty Mighty Boss Towns instead. So
0: no, no, no. I never cared for the
1: Boss. Oh, really? Wow.
0: I went from Real Big Fish, and then I'm like, Real Big Fish. What's that? Like uh, a few months later, we got like NYC catalog CDs. We got like the Toasters. We got the Agro Lights. We got some like heavy. I'm, I'm heavy guessing heavy these are ska bands. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I got into the Blue Meanies for a long time. Uh, which is like metal ska. Wow. Uh, Memphis, a Memphis-based Kudo. satanic ska band. Kudos to them. Uh, what about Mormon
1: centaurs? Did you ever get into that?
0: No, they're not real,
1: <laughs> though I want them to be.
0: Uh, so yeah, uh, Scott definitely a guilty pleasure for me. Pretty much all of it. You could say real big fish because that's what got me into it. Yeah, uh, sellout. It was on the radio. I quite enjoyed it. I don't think we can go whole genres. I actually made some decisions because I didn't feel like we could put whole genres on the I'm, list. I'm going to reveal big fish. That's okay. what started the, the whole trend. RBF it is. All right. Number two for me. So this one is really introspective. This is about me judging myself. This is about me at 30 years old looking backwards in the rearview mirror. That's what Sky is Right. Me, so I get it. And, and kind of seeing my life as a musical progression. Yeah. And there's, there are a number of points where I wonder what happened. But the greatest of those is the dashboard confessional period of my life. Yeah, no. and yet, That's well, your disco. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. exactly what it is. So I look back on it in shame, and I go, oh, God, you know? And I think to myself, how many blog entries did I never write but dream about? Uh how many screaming infidelity. That's about. right. How many that's journals did I buy only then to never use <laughs> so that I could really get my angst out? <laughs> Having said all that... Occasionally, a Dashboard Confessional song comes on. For example, I watch the original Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Dashboard Confessional is so the... a credit song on that, and it's absolutely appropriate. Fucking phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Screaming Infidelities comes on, and I look around to see if anybody else is in the room. And if they <laughs> aren't, I go absolutely apeshit to it. Like, yeah. that is... That's me jumping around in like the the kindest, most benevolent mosh pit to never no, exist. Dashboard's probably four for me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. So you get this. So I don't feel like I need to justify it too much more. No. No. All right. right. God bless. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> and your number two. <laughs> All right, my number two. You've probably not heard of it because I I shouldn't have heard of it. So it's the reverse of the ska complaint. Um, so with ska. I feel entirely, like, too detached with age. And I look at my younger self and go, what were you thinking? There's nothing respectable here. Uh, this next band, I'm too old to listen to at all. And you'll listen to, So I'm going to go with Death Grips. Which is like Blood Brothers, or if it was less listenable, it's mm. just assaultive music. It's It is the least commercial thing I've ever heard. It's just... Angry glitch scream rap with like an album cover that's just like a picture of a dildo and a fetish mask. Like it's just so – I can't tell what they're saying 90% of the time. It's just assault of noise. They have one album that's just called like Sample A and no music – and it's just like angry glitchy techno stuff. But at at a certain point, like I feel like I missed out on punk. Like sure. I came to it late. <laughs> And that's the most punk thing I can see because it just wants to burn down audio, like it that's just fair. wants to take the concept of sound. No, I get it. You're and light you're it on fire. Reaching. But I'm too old on that. Right. I'm too old to listen to it, and so you know I have to listen to it. in No, I totally get that, and I don't judge you. Well, I judge you a little bit. I, I have no frame of reference for this, but for the Blood Brothers, and there was a point in my life where I told myself that one Blood Brothers song was good. And I was wrong. I was wrong about. Yeah, that. it makes Dillinger Escape Plan like look tame, melodic, yeah. even. Yes, you would put Dillinger Escape Plan on like the soundtrack of your brunch, right? Before you would put Death Grips mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the soundtrack of your brunch. By the way, is like a really good. A re- that's like, like, like a Nick Boss and Nora's infinite playlist or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like okay. a sequel. Yeah. Um. For the for the more wealth, the more affluent Nick and this Nora. podcast is just becoming a marriage. where we bring back? Yeah. Petty I'm going to, to things that offend. drag you through the mud on some of these <laughs> all things. All right. All right. So here's number one for me. Um, I told you that, you know, I don't have guilt for much of my music the Selena Gomez, the Taylor Swift, um, all of the shitty stuff I'm willing to play in a bar. But there is a line there in pop music that I'm not willing to play in a bar unless I'm the most drunk guy in the bar. And that's Miley Cyrus. <laughs> I've seen you do this. Yeah, because I had been the most... you truly give no fucks at that point. Nope. At that point, it is shirt off, hoping to God someone watches me dance to this in the corner. And if someone wants to fight you, you are the wrecking ball. I am. So let me tell you this. Here's why I know this is true. <laughs> because without Googling anything today, I thought, wait, is Miley Cyrus really my guilty pleasure? And then without even looking up her discography... I thought, well, here are songs I love listening to: "Party in the USA," "See You Again," "Wrecking Ball," "We Can't Stop." And then I thought, oh, I named more than one Miley Cyrus song, so I like Miley Cyrus songs too much. (laughs) "Party in the USA" is, without question, the catchiest song in the history of the world. If you can, I can just see the Patreon like ticking down. (laughs) No, 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 no. Unless you're taking that money and going to buy Party in the USA, which I totally understand, I need you to pump the brakes, okay? It's the catchiest song in the world. And if you can listen to that song in the morning and not be humming it in the evening, something's wrong with your eardrums, is how I feel about that. Okay. So it's Miley Cyrus for me. Yeah. And for you? For me, uh, I'm going to go with uh, it's, a sh- it's a short Guilty Pleasure. Not much to like go off of. The musical act there. is short? Yeah. Uh, Amy Winehouse. Wow. I really like all of her music. I thought she was an excellent singer. Uh, live performances left something to be desired because she was high on heroin mm-hmm. for most of them. Yeah. And then she died in sort of this cartoonish level of self destruction not seen since Jim Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is sort of like Light Adele to many people, and yeah. I get it. But as a person that was in jazz band that really likes jazz, like, she could belt it. She kept on time. She didn't overly exaggerate. She wasn't scat singing at any fucking point. Like, she was a serious, f- full-throated jazz musician. Sure. Um, I'm actually curious, like, what what your um, guilt is there. There's a lot of people that see Amy Winehouse and think that you like her because she's a sex symbol or because she was on the radio for a certain amount of time. And at this point, she's a one-hit wonder because, you know she's super dead Uh, but like so it's kind of weird to say like I want to put an Amy Winehouse song on the radio sure Uh, it's equivalent like me putting like a deep cut from Harvey Danger on the radio which Mm. I also would do number five right number five guilty pleasure Um, but yeah I, I really thought she had a lot of talent and it was sort of tragic that she you know ended up destroying it as enthusiastically as she did. Fair. Uh, But, yeah, it wasn't like a sex thing as they tried to bill her because, you know, it's modern pop music and, like, I don't know what to do with an Ella Fitzgerald voice. Uh, But, yeah, guilty pleasure for me, Amy Whitehouse. Totally fair. I I actually like that suggestion quite a bit. Uh, And on that note, pun intended, I'm going to get another beer. Hey, Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is an F5 IPA from Coop Aleworks. It's 6.8%. At this point, I don't I don't know that I've had a beer below 6.5%. For Another Baz recommendation. A couple of hours. Also a recommendation from Andrew Baswell. And also my second IPA of the day um, that I needed to taste before I rated it. Um, wow. Okay. That really gets in there. Um <laughs> And that to me is a hopper, um, and probably probably really getting close to hitting the upper limits of a hopper into a steve. But I'll, I'll give it, it a gets solid better point. the longer it does a job. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Uh, and you know, as I said <laughs> earlier, someone who's been out of the IPA game for a while, this is uh, this is pretty good entrance back into. So Baz told me this. They've stopped making sixteen ounces of that. Yeah, I can see that. It's exclusively 12 ounces. So that's one of the last ones. Right. Also, probably the the big can was probably not a great idea. I don't know For beer. No, it's fine. It's it's doing great. (laughs) Anyway, what we're going to talk about in Ask Mixed Six is uh, we've got a lot of questions about writing um because I do that on occasion, producer Ross does that on occasion. Good. Uh Spencer uh does that on occasion. Did it. And so we are talking about this. So it's a legitimate question for once. Uh not that the uh s'mores question wasn't legitimate. I just don't think we ex- answered it legitimately. Whoa. Um, hey, fuck you, man. I, feel, I mean, it was earnest, but I, I, not, it was not useful information. The most honest shit ever. <laughs> I, I disagree
1: with his opinion, but I respect it.
0: Okay. Uh, anyway, question. I feel like uh, I'm sitting on a table of enemies. To be, to be clear, the question starts with, okay, a legitimate question, colon. I'm a deeply disorganized person with a lot of ideas for games and pitches. How do I nail down a single idea and devote so much energy to building it without burning out? So basically, how do you deal with writing a long project? Yeah. So thoughts? Man, that's a tough one and a really good question, and I would imagine probably something that a lot of our listeners, because we've received a ton of questions, and a lot of them were in this vein. Yes. How do you devote time, energy, effort, attention into one big project, um, I, I got. Go ahead. I ask you because I did not learn how to do it until grad school. Right, <laughs> like higher ed taught me how to do it. I don't think it's necessary to teach you how to do it. Obviously, right. But I did not get it down until higher ed, and that's when I transferred into like nerdy RPG space. Yeah, that's that's a really good assessment for me too. So you have to remember that uh, my experience with this question comes from kind of a different angle. It's not the creative space as much as it is the professional space Mm -hmm. so i've I've put time and effort into two huge projects my master's thesis and my doctoral dissertation both large projects took a considerable period of time my dissertation took probably two years start to finish Uh, two lessons that i learned there in terms of making myself write: lesson number one was uh don't be who you want to be be who you are when it comes to writing so first mistake i made was I would tell myself I was going to get up at 7 a.m. and I was going to start writing and I was going to write for three hours and then I'd take a break. You know, The reality is I don't sleep very well, so getting up at 7 a.m. is really tough for me, and I can't do it. I'm a morning person, but I'm a morning person on my own terms. The reality was, and I learned this over time, I did my best writing from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and so I just had to start building my day around doing everything I needed to do, being able to relax from, say, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then once my wife went to bed and the dog was asleep and there were no more distractions and I could put my headphones on, I could knock the fuck out of some writing. But I had to really own that and not try to be someone else because that was someone else's method for writing. I just needed to figure out how I wrote best and do that. Second thing I learned about myself in terms of investing time's time into big projects Um, I had to figure out what music worked for me and what music didn't work for me because it's very important. I cannot listen to things with words when I write. Almost no one can. And so I fell in love with the Ratatats of the world because it was something to keep me going and it had some energy and it also didn't distract me. So I had to figure out when writing worked best for me and what music worked best for me. So I guess – I guess my rule was be honest about who you are and what you like, and then write in that environment. Yeah. Rather than, you know, people kept telling me go to a coffee shop, write with people around you. You know, the reality is sometimes I wanted to write in my fucking underwear and walk around in it uh, because I just needed to get up and move away from my computer, and Starbucks didn't care for that. So don't do that shit. Uh, That's so true. So some Ross and I have talked about this before, that writing a big project is uh, about the act of psychologically manipulating yourself. Absolutely it is. Um, And you have to sort of be honest with yourself before you go into that. 100%. Um, So writing at a coffee house or someplace else actually worked for me pretty well because I didn't like it. I am very much the person that eats as quickly as possible or drinks as quickly as possible. And then Desperately desires to leave that place, Um, so that worked for me. Not because people were around me and I had some sort of performance aspect of writing. If I said to myself I couldn't leave until I finished so many words, it was sort of the you know Pavlovian carrot at the end of the stick. Got to keep pushing, and that's the only way I've ever finished any large project. Sure, is sort of developing what I want, whether it be food or video game time or sleep or something else that I will work hard for, and then having the willpower to just say, you have to deny yourself this thing you want until you get this done. And it's not as if that's every day for writing. But the thing is, when you're writing a big project, you're not worried about the days you really want to write right. Because there are those days. Yeah. Like, the days you want to write occur, and they occur infrequently. And when when you get one, ride that fucking horse. Yes. And it's, yeah, the flow state, like, writing is best done in long, extended spurts. Like, having a routine is good for most people. But, like, if you can get 10,000 words in a day... It's better than, like, 400 words every other day. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, uh, so it's great in that aspect because it keeps you motivated. And you will have those days you want to write. But, like, you've got to learn to sort of Pavlovian manipulate your own psyche. You've got to kind of separate yourself out and be able to discipline yourself uh, as if you were two people in one in order to get through those days when you just do not want to do it.
1: That's fair. Producer Ross, you've written some big projects. What, What would you say? Um, Yeah, definitely the music. I would uh, definitely agree with that uh, in terms of having something. I mean, it's going to be different for everybody, some people. um, But having something that can... Occupy that part of the brain while you're writing was good. Um, for me, it's it's yeah, obviously finding the time to do it, and then just sitting down at the, uh, the the keyboard and thinking, well, what's next? What is the next thing? And then okay, I need to write that, and then just getting that on paper. So it's just focusing on the immediate task, not like looking at the big picture or whatever. Just focusing on what the next sentence is, what the next paragraph is, and then not worry. I'll go like it's very easy to get paralyzed because. You have, oh, God, I have to write 20,000 words. I have to write this 100 pages. But if you just focus on what's next, then it becomes more uh, doable.
0: That's such a great suggestion. And out, outlining, whether it's for an academic project oh, yeah. or an RPG project, because it's basically tech writing, right, um, is supremely important, not because of organization issues. That's a s- secondary effect. It's because I have to get... 500 words done in this section, and yep. that's it. Yep. It's it's so much breaks the journey of a 1,000 miles oh, into man. a single step. That's what I had uh, Don Parsons, this great mentor at KU. He'd been there 49 years, I think, when he retired. He took me to lunch one day, and he said, how's your dissertation coming? And I said, frankly, it's not coming at all. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, I just can't wrap my head around writing this five-chapter behemoth. And he said, you don't have to write five chapters. Today you need to write a fucking paragraph. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, what a meaningful sentence that I need to worry about. And if time- you can't write paragraphs, you write sentences. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. I need to worry about the literally the next thing that I need to accomplish. And every time you get that thing, then worry about the next thing. And cumulatively over time, those things add up. You know, the other note I'd make about outlining, and this is totally a weird thing, But if you were to come to my house and scour the infinite number of empty journals that I have because I have a blank canvas problem, in there you would find some journals that are scribbled on to death. Those are the journals that I use for my dissertation. I outlined almost my entire dissertation by hand before I typed a single word. Um, I outlined red markets by hand no less than four times before I started typing. It's word. so significant, and, I, and I, cannot, I cannot tell you why, but, but here's what I know. Um, Joel Hawkins, who you know quite well, mm-hmm. dear friend Joel Hawkins, at From Joel, is a brilliant designer. Uh, and probably my best friend in the whole wide world of 20 years, Joel said to me one day uh, while I was stuck, you should try writing something on paper because putting pen to paper completes the mental circuit. This was a line he'd picked up from a, a professor at gra- in grad school. And I thought, I don't know what the fuck that means, but I'll give it a shot. And I don't know what it was, but, man, it fucking worked. And uh, getting I that an stuff entire 20,000-word hard- scenario. By hand during jury duty. Absolutely. And I still think it's one of the best things I've ever written. Yep. And it might be because it was written by hand.
1: Which one is it? Uh,
0: Revelations. Oh, yeah. Uh, I looked like a real, like, I think it might have been the reason I didn't get on the jury because I was consulting a Bible the entire time. (laughs) Uh, This is like, oh, not that one. He wants to see a bird. But um, yeah, no, I totally get that. I look back at that outlined notebook when I get stuck on other things sometimes as a reminder that there are ways to get yourself mentally unstuck. You've just got to keep trying different things until it works. And then when it works, and I don't know if either of you have experienced this, there is a moment, like a watershed moment, where once you feel unstuck, but you got to work hard to get there, shit just flows out of you. Yeah. I mean, I would have days where it would be a struggle to write a sentence, and I would push and push and push, and it might take me a week to get a sentence on paper, but if I could get past that sentence, I could write 10 pages in one night and never flinch. You know, No editing, nothing. Just fucking poured out of me. Um, like, you know, zombies from a cage. Yeah. Uh, but but you have to push. And I, and I will say this. In terms of my writing development, the most significant thing I've ever figured out was how to do this. Like, if I can't do a paragraph, do a sentence. If right. I can't do a sentence, do words. Yeah, Like, Absolutely. break it down into a step, you mm-hmm. can do it and build up. Because um, I came from the creative writing school. My master's is in creative writing. Like, full-blown workshop method. And I'm not from Iowa or anything. But there is this sort of thing of like quality over quantity in that regard, and so when I started hanging out with Ross and Ross is like, I need to do ten thousand words. I'm like, oh, would you do that? And like last last night, I mean, <laughs> the deadline was tomorrow. Like stuff like that. There was a part of me, and this part was completely wrong and stupid because I've done better work in the RPG space than I ever did in creative writing. Uh, it was it was like, well, you must be a hack, and like after two years of like being like hey being a hack works and it pays some money and like being a hack I went back to like adjunct teaching and I went back to like working on a um, professional board for a literary journal and like people be like yeah I, I'm really struggling with the story it's about like a thousand words I can cut it down a little bit and they're just like working on this artisanal like Amy Hempel level piece of short story construction and I'm just like okay what else are you working on they're like no that's it that's what I've been doing on like how long nine months and I'm like what? What? Right. What? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I, I write that, I've I've written that while we were speaking, like, like and that, and like embracing that, like, be a hack. Yeah. Like, be, hack at it. Not, like, not everything needs to be your magnum opus. It just needs to be done. Producer Ross, you once said to me, it's kind of weird that you say, I have to go type. Because, uh, like, it'd be like, no, I can't do that. I have to go type. And I would not say I have to go write, like... Consult the oracle in the sky. (laughs) No, I need to go sit there and pound my fingers against this mechanical device for a certain number of hours. And like, it it took me so long to embrace that. And like, my dad is not a writer, but he's like a workman. And he always told me when I said I wanted to be a writer as a kid, it's like, well, you should just do it for a certain number of hours every day and then you'll be really good at it. And I'm like, oh, dad, you don't truly understand inspiration. (laughs) I'm an artist. Yeah. Yeah, Like, and I'm just like, the second i threw that out the fucking window it's like my job's not to write my job is to type that's right from this period to this period like i got so much better yeah absolutely yeah Uh, and on that note and now that we've all reminded ourselves how depressing something has been at some point time for you to get another beer (laughs) yeah Beer 11 of Mixed 12, hashtag Mixed 12 Monday. It's cool. We're doing, we're cool. Everyone is fine here. We're fine. What is Beer 11 on Hashtag Mixed 12 Monday? Beer 11 is Breckenridge Breweries Brewery's Nitro Vanilla Porter. And I deserve a medal just for saying Wow. wow. The MVP. Yes. Uh, the MVP, uh, literally what it says on the tin. Yeah, I wasn't being clever there. I was just reading, mm-hmm. as it were. It's pretty clever considering the context. Right. Um, so it is a solid hopper. It's a three. That's a three. I could do the job. Uh it's a porter. I'm a big fan, but it might just be losing points for the fact that I've had like every porter. Because I'm a big fan of porters. Portered out. So it's it's competing for a lot of it's a crowded space, is what I'm saying. That's fair. That's fair. So what are we gonna talk about? All right. So In Beer 5 today, a new segment for us, and a new new segment based exclusively on the fact that we decided to record two episodes in the same day, back-to-back. Yeah. (laughs) This episode is called This Was a Mistake, Mm -hmm. all right? Um, And it, A, adequately reflects how we feel about our decision right now to do two episodes back-to-back. Indeed. And, B, it also gives us an opportunity to talk about, in terms of cosmic scheming, mistakes. And today, we're going to talk about Branson, Missouri. A local mistake.
1: A local mistake. That has spread internationally. As featured on The Simpsons in multiple episodes. (laughs) It's as if Ned Flanders ran Las Vegas is how it is described. So um, the
0: best way I've ever heard Branson described was in a creative writing workshop where a person in his story referred to it as a Kryptonian interior designer's red kryptonite-fueled nightmare. Wow. And it really hit it on every level because it is an alien design aesthetic. It's an alien design aesthetic that's concerned with like a singular vision. Mm-hmm. But that vision has gone, even by alien standards, wrong. It has gone wrong on so many different levels. Um, and there is an element of sort of Carcosa esque <laughs> uh, narrative. If you've ever driven through Branson, especially the strip where it sort of winds through the hills in these endlessly blind turns like by putt-putt golf by other putt-putt golf by theater bobby venton bobby Bobby vent on your way to the shepherd of the hills the religious (sighs) monument and statue atop the land it's just oh man it's just utterly insane i have two thoughts about what branson is so the first is you know i have been around a dear friend who went through what he called a downward spiral and it was bad decision after bad decision and that, if I had to describe the topographical slash geographical layout of Branson, I would describe it as a downward spiral. <laughs> yes. someone had one bad idea and they thought, oh man, this bad idea, well, might as well follow it up with another bad idea. And, you know, only months later, it's like they've, they've harbored a coke addiction and they've lost all their money to prostitutes and those prostitutes are old and they used to be starlets. And now they're living, you know, off of the the Route 76 (laughs) and they're working at Incredible Pizza. So we're perhaps referring to it too poetically here. So Branson as a business model, as a town, it is an entertainment media industry, but is geared entirely towards people for whom no media is no longer geared towards, aside from CBS. Um, And it is geared towards the agent. So if you would still like to see an episode of the Lawrence Welk for show be performed live, you go to Branson. You go to Branson. If you want to see Bobby Vinton, do you not know who Bobby Vinton is? That's the point. Right. The point is that you don't know who Bobby Vinton is. You go there. Would you like to see Yakov Shmironov perform comedy unironically? You go to Branson, you know. But here's the here's the real brilliance of Branson. So because I don't, here's what I don't want to do. Only recently, uh, there was a local show, well, a, a national show called Ink Ink promoted on TLC about yes. a local tattoo parlor. What I don't want to do is I don't want to fall into the trap of criticizing local for the purposes of gaining national attention. Although obviously this will gain international attention because we are so you know side side slappingly easily two hundred fifty dollars on Patreon,
1: right. Um, as of this recording as Yeah, of this they're recording. flowing in yes.
0: So I don't, want to be, I don't want to be those guys Because there is some brilliance in Branson, right? So it is the Yes, you can go see Andy Williams Or you can go see the ghost of Andy Williams I would assume at this point at the Andy <laughs> Williams Theater You can go see what Andy Williams hath wrought Okay, <laughs> At the Andy Williams Theater but bring, And weep <laughs> That's right, but bring their grandkids Because next door to the Andy Williams Theater You can go play mini golf And you can have a pizza buffet and actually, there's indoor mini golf that is neon highlighted and objectively racist because we've participated in okay, neon. Indoor so we mini went golf. to one mini golf place, the cheapest we could find. Because mini, if you want mini golf, you go to Branson. You go to Branson. It's they, the it might be the mini golf capital of the world. Yeah, there's more putt putt there and more objectively great putt putt there than anywhere else. There's so I've much. We seen. should call it major golf. This yes, is how I feel about that. Uh, so we we went to this place because it was cheap because it was about the pizza place. Now. <laughs> it is perhaps the most racist thing I have ever seen outside Birth of a Nation. Well, apparently a Michael Bay film, also. And a, and a Michael Bay film. Um, but it was like old-timey racist, yet at the same time, it's a putt-putt golf place, so like that place receives some wear and tear. Yeah. It was like Walt Disney racist. But magically maintained. Yeah. So like well, someone thought <laughs> like big-lipped Native American was a great theme for a putt-putt golf place. No more than five years ago, and they built that in Branson with millions of dollars. And here's what they did: they then gave you 3D glasses
1: so you didn't miss
0: the experience. Right? Yeah, like the, if you're going get... red-faced
1: experience of that nightmare hellscape. Wait, 3D glasses in real life? Yes, yes. Because you if wear
0: you're... 3D glasses in the blacklight, oh, Native American-themed 18-hole. Indoor putt-putt place. If you're and that is Branson scalped, to its core. Right. If you're going to get scalped, get scalped IRL, man. It's like <laughs> kind of the theme of that place. And and that was above the, the pizza buffet, which we also dined at. And it was disgusting. And it was across from the outlet mall. Uh, and if you could take a, just a square mile of Branson and say, what is Branson, Missouri? <laughs> you would say it is uh, 3D <laughs> indoor racist mini golf on top of a pizza buffet. Next to Old Star and or Starlet's Theater across yeah. the street from the Outlet Mall, you would have perfectly defined Branson on a square mile. Yes. Now, here, here's one of the reasons that Branson makes me uncomfortable. Mm. I am... <laughs> Aside from the overt racism? Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I played that mini golf game is what I'm saying. We didn't know going in. We didn't. They did not advertise it on the outside. We did not know. The, yes. The giant sign did not, not, not like say we saw like racist yeah, mini golf. Yeah. Correct. It just said indoor mini golf. Yeah. And it was hot and it was cheap. Yeah. Um, I am, and I've, I've intimated this to you in the past. I, I get the tingleys from simulated life. So like a wax museum also found in Branson or a <laughs> Ripley's, believe yeah. it or not, also found in Branson. These things frighten me. I don't <laughs> like the idea of simulated life. So for example, um, the third Beverly Hills cop, which I think is underrated in the <laughs> canon. I can't watch the end because they go through this like, um, uh, uh, ice age, Like Roller Coaster Ride, where there are simulated cave people frozen in the ice. Is this where your hatred of all stop-motion animation comes from? It absolutely is where my (laughs) hatred of all stop-motion animation comes from. Well, I've learned something today. So I have a a legitimate fear of simulated life. I don't like Branson because everywhere I look, not just in the wax museums and the Ripleys, believe it or not, Branson is simulated life. And you know what? They need that simulated life because they don't have very much real life left. It is appallingly... Sad. Yeah, the economic model of Branson is to cater to people in the last 10 to 5 years of their life. Probably. Which is sort of remarkable because Branson is constantly reinventing itself to cater to people that are not quite in the home yet. Right. But really headed there. Yeah, like producer Ross, you had a good observation earlier. Like they they've upped their game in terms of like yeah. at least in terms of age. Or well, yeah, I lowered mean lowered
1: their game. Branson started out essentially as a nineteenth century business model, you know, live music shows. Right. And um, and also like The Shepherd of the Hills Country, not many people realize this today, but it was based on a novel that was a bestseller in literally a century ago, like 1916. Right. And, uh, and it is unreadable. Hey, the it's unreadable. <laughs> Bell Wright, very moralistic, very uh, melodramatic. And people in that area like pretended to be characters from that novel uh, in order to make a buck from gullible tourists. Yep. And they only stopped doing the play version of that book, which no one has read in decades, Uh, like a couple of years ago. It was last
0: year. Yeah. Right. It is the Ozarks. Last last year year was the last performance (laughs) of the Shepherd of the Hills live show.
1: Yeah. And so – they uh I forgot what your original question was. Well, yeah. so
0: I mean yeah. like here's what it comes down to right? Branson yeah. has a tendency to do that. You forget why you're there. Yeah, no, they, they they've been trying to reinvent is.
1: themselves to be more mainstream because with the, they also have a Titanic museum. They do. Uh, uh, they've
0: got a They also have they've got the a Beatles impersonation show. Yeah, that, so they are trying to sort of update the Well, they also have
1: that shopping mall, Agedness. On the lake. yeah. Yeah, they have a massive shopping mall, and then Chateau on the Lake, which yeah. is this beautiful hotel. So they're trying to they're trying to gentrify, they're trying to change themselves to become like a family vacation point, uh, and for like upper middle class people who like don't want to get a passport, you know, right? Yeah, or don't want to leave the Midwest.
0: It's also home to Silver Dollar City, which is both theme park, uh, like roller coaster ride theme park, but also like no old timey churn your own butter. Yes, uh, and also act like a pioneer.
1: And they have a cave. Right, in a cave that I, you can, like... Get. I've been to that cave. Everyone's been to that cave. And it's approved. Yeah. So the best part of Branson
0: is... What was that place called? Marvel Cave? No, what was it called? Anyway, they have a cave tour that is at the beginning of the cave in large, like, poster-sized font is an official cave. <laughs> oh. It's been officially expected by the cave inspecting... I'll tell you this right now. If it was an unofficial cave, I'd demand my money back. (laughs) No shit. Yeah. But, like, what what does it go into being an official cave? They do have the bat bar inside of it, which is a bar inside of a cave did you get drunk in a cave in branson? i did get drunk in a cave in the ozarks oh, so i think we man. found
1: branson's new model
0: so yeah. you know what and I want they to, use gray goose vodka they they skimping on it. i want you to scrap the last 11 minutes there is a bar in branson in a cave where you can get drunk the bat bar go we, to branson we can bring a recorder we could do a live episode in a cave live episode in branson. <laughs> that's a new milestone right. for a patrons. <laughs> new milestone hashtag, hashtag, hashtag getting drunk in branson yeah. bat bar speaking All of right. getting drunk cave drunk i'm gonna get a new beer yeah As it was beer 11, you're going to have to forgive us that we forgot to do the outro. A mea culpa. But this is it for the free version of the mix 6. If you would like to stick it out to beer 12 or beer 6 of episode 6... Think of my numbers right? Yeah, that's Think right. my numbers right. We're six That and is, is how numbers work. Yeah. yeah. We're knee deep in podcasts. I'm not too drunk for numbers. Uh, if you'd like to stick it out for Beer 6, uh, please support us on the Patreon. And if not, thanks for listening so far. And we hope you have a great week.